The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and we have a pretty special interview today. That interview is with Anne V. Coates. Now, if you haven't heard of Anne, I don't know where you've been. She's got Lords of Arabia, Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich, you name it. And of course, one of my favorites, What About Bob? So what we're doing here, this is actually going to be a special Edit Fest podcast because we're pre-interviewing her for London Edit Fest. So we're just getting people a little acquainted with her, a little acquainted with her work. Prepare you for EdFest London. If you aren't going to EdFest London, you've got to check it out. You got to go EdFest.com. Buy your tickets. If you can't make it to EdFest, can't afford it, what have you, don't worry. Of course, we're having a pub night. We're gonna have a pub night right after EdFest. We're encouraging all the editors to go. We're encouraging everyone in the area to go. Check it out. It's gonna be at the John Snow Pub from 8 to 11. That's right. So it's in the Soho area, John Snow Pub, 8 to 11. Now, we also are going to, I'm going to be hosting a panel and that's going to be on television editing. We're also going to be hosting a panel in New York City in June. That's June 8th. And that one's going to be focusing on transmedia pipelines or work lines for editors. Some of it can be a little boring, but we're going to try and make it engaging and exciting. Just been reading up on xmls and utilizing them as sort of roadmaps kind of boring stuff but don't worry about that we're gonna make it exciting we have the guys from be real we have the guys from at radical we're gonna hopefully blow your minds before i get into the ann Coates interview remember always go to itunes rate us rate our friends over at that post show if you haven't been to that post show go check it out Go there, rate them, rate us, check out our iPad apps, our iPhone apps. We just updated them. And actually, Richard, for those who updated and said they loved it, some sent in a few suggestions, and Richard's going to update those suggestions uh, very soon. So, with all that said, I do have to give a little preface to this interview. Anne's been interviewed a lot. And I mean a lot. If you search for Anne Coates or Anne B. Coates, on AOTG.com, you'll probably find about three to four pages on Ann Coates. So what I did was I went through all those interviews and I tried to ask her questions that she'd never been asked before. So she's been asked a lot about Lawrence of Arabia. So what I've done is if you go to AOTG.com slash cutting room and click on the Ann Coates interview, which is with this interview audio, you'll see a list of all those interviews in one place so if you're sitting here going why is Gord talking about I don't know for example we mentioned a surgical hospital that she worked at during the war why is Gord talking about this you can go through you can listen to all our interviews get ready for this interview and then you're gonna be so ready for Edifest London that you can ask the most intelligent questions all right so with all that said we have a bit of setup in the beginning of this one and then we get right into the interview my favorite part of this this is only part one we're gonna have part two at the ending of this part 
there's a little story about George Clooney, who she's remained friends with since Out of Sight. So, enjoy my interview with Ann Coates. People tend to be a reflection of their societies and their culture, and you grew up in the UK during World War II. Like, you grew up at a young age and were in World War II as a, as a nurse at the Archibald uh, McIndoe's Plastic Surgery Hospital. Well, yeah, I wasn't a nurse at the most of the war. I was at school. Well, I was wondering how sort of this experience influenced you or affected your the way you see the world. I grew up during the war, but then I didn't know anything else. So uh, actually, from my point of view, uh, we, we were evacuated eventually. We weren't evacuated to begin with. But once Dunkirk fell, because I could hear the guns of Dunkirk, and I remember it. It's a memory that's very vivid to me. And my younger brother, who unfortunately died last year, he also remembered hearing the guns. And we lived in Surrey. So we were 50 miles from the coast, and I guess another 50 miles to France. But we, it was a very still day, and uh, or days around then, so that we could actually hear the guns. Well, when that happened, my father evacuated us down to Devon, uh, took, took a house down there, and we went down as a family. So I was not there for the first bombings, luckily. But, I mean, I didn't know anything other than war. So, I mean, I didn't notice anything different because that was just the way I've, we lived. We always had it. We lived in the country, so we always had enough food. You know, we kept our own hens. We had our own cow. So we didn't go short of as short of food as people living in the center of the cities. You know what I mean? It, I never knew anything but war, so I didn't know what it was. I couldn't remember particularly what it was like in peace. When you started working, you started working at religious films. And in some of the interviews I've seen, you've said that J. Arthur Rank was your uncle and that you had to convince him to get into to film because he didn't want you to enter for the glamour and the, the actors. So what was it that finally convinced him? Well, because eventually I managed to get to have, a, have a, a meeting with him or we had lunch with him, my mother and I. And I think when he actually saw me and how sincere I was and the, that he kind of, you know, gave me a chance and kept, a, I think, quite a big eye on me to begin with. But then he realized how serious I was about it. And then when I started winning things and that sort of thing, he was very proud of me. So I think it was the, when I actually met him, I was able to convince him because I was kind of very sincere. You know, if you are at about 18 or 19, and I was determined to get into the business. So I guess I impressed him with that, and he gave me a chance. He thought, I, mean, if, 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 I think by putting me in religious films, he thought he might put me off. If it was the glamour, it certainly wasn't very glamorous there, but to me it was very exciting to be working in film. So uh, I really enjoyed my time at religious films because I was doing projection and sound and I was learning all sorts, as well as, you know, sending the, the films out to the churches at the weekend and that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, I was really interested in what I was learning there, and it didn't put me off at all. Now, how did you transition from there to the the big features? Well, because I couldn't work in features because I wasn't in the union, and the trade union was very strong. The trade union movement in England at that time was very strong, and particularly strong in the film industry. 
So I couldn't get, even didn't matter who my uncle was, I couldn't get a job in the studios, only in a, a company like Religious Films, which is not unionized. But while I was working there, they came around, to, uh, they were trying to unionize these small companies. So they came around and wanted us to get in the union. And nobody there wanted to accept me. I said, give me the form, I'll sign it immediately. And once that happened, I heard of a job going at Pinewood Studios, and I was in a position to apply for it because I was in the union. And I went and had a meeting with the uh, the managing director of the studios, I guess, and got uh, got a job on a film at Pinewood as a second assistant in the cutting rooms. I had to, um, uh, I won't call it lying, but uh, exaggerate what I knew about film because I'd never really worked in a proper cutting room. So I had to kind of, you know, give a few not exactly truths about what I could do because he asked me if I could do opticals and lay tracks and things like that. I'd never done any of that. So I said yes, yes to everything. And I've always advised students when I talk to them. I said, you sometimes have to just exaggerate if you think you can really do it. And I went and got a sort of crash course with a friend of mine who was working in the real cutting room and set off for Pinewood, and that's how I started. And there was a trainee on the film who knew a lot more about film than I did. He was very nice. He was from New Zealand, and uh, he really helped me because I didn't know very much, and I was trying to hide it, but I could splice it and do things like that. So I got on okay. Now, you got to work with uh, Reggie uh, Mills. Reggie Mills? Yeah, well, it was interesting, actually, because the film I was working on, End of the River, Michael Powell and... and Emmerich Pressburger were producing it, and a, a director called Derek Twist was directing it, and they didn't particularly like what well, you know, it was a young editor who was just well, not that experienced, and they didn't like the work he was doing, so they decided to let Reggie Mills um, have a go at it, and Reggie, for some reason or another, asked for me to go up with the film rather than the first assistant. And so it was a wonderful break for me, actually, because there I was working with Reggie Mills, who was actually cutting red shoes at the time, which is why I managed to work a bit on red shoes, but I was only really helping out in the cutting room. I helped them with some splicing and syncing up dailies and stuff like that. And then I was wonderful because I could watch Reggie, you know, remolding the film, as it were. What did you learn from Reggie in that experience? A lot of discipline, actually. He was very difficult to work for. And uh, you had to be really on the ball all the time. And I learned that from him. But I don't think I learned... I don't think I was experienced enough to learn a lot from what he was actually doing with the film, except that he was tightening it up a lot. I did notice that. And that he was losing lines and... um, He was quite creative in what he was doing. I think, uh, you know, Mickey wanted him to do that, to come in on the film and do that sort of thing. Because he was quite nicely cut already, but it was a little bit slow and a little bit ponderous, and I think he wanted Reggie to speed it up a bit and make it a little bit more intelligible. It was quite a complicated story. But if I'd been a little more experienced, I think maybe I would have benefited more from an editing point of view watching Reggie. But I was at his side the whole time. He has an assistant standing by him, handing the film to him all the time. So that was interesting. So I watched over his shoulder, and he, he seldom ever spoke. He was a, a martinet, I think you'd call it. But that was really good training for me. And also, 
I had the notes, so a lot of the time when Mickey was giving notes or Emmerich or somebody, I would have the notes so I knew what he was doing and would tell him what it was that they wanted doing. So I was very involved in that way because I knew before him really sometimes what it was he was going to be doing. So I could get the trims out ahead of time. In one of the interviews I, I watched uh, with you, you said that you always attempt to adapt your style to whatever the film requires that you're working on. How do you approach editing so that it best reflects the story and the pacing and doesn't fall into the actor's delivery or the DP's work or style? It's not really something you can exactly explain. I mean, it's just something that I feel when I, you know, read a script or see the dailies or talk to the director. I mean, you don't go in with a, a, I don't anyway, I go in with a very open mind. And, uh, you know, I sometimes have ideas about how I'm going to, when I read the script, uh, how I'm going to cut it and that sort of thing. But very often when you see the dailies, you know, the acting performances are very different from the way you imagined them and you have to adapt your editing to the material that you've got and that, you know, you can't always foresee or you can't ever foresee exactly how that's going to be. So it's just something, I guess, that's in you. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's what makes you an editor, but I don't think I find it difficult to explain. I know people like Walter Mersch can explain that really well, but I can. it's something I feel and it's something that's me, but uh, I don't think I can really put it into words. You, you brought up watching the rushes. What do you look for when you're watching the rushes in the actor's delivery? I've read the script, so I'm looking for, generally speaking, if the director is, is shooting the script and um, deviating from it, which a lot of directors do. But they're telling the, the actors are telling the story and, and creating the characters as they are in the script. So I look for that. But, you know, one is often faced by not a very good performance, and you have to cut round it or revoice it even in some cases I've done. But generally speaking, I look to see that they're creating the characters that are needed to tell the story. You've had the chance to work with a lot of amazing directors. And I was wondering, I guess, starting with Steven uh, Sodenberg, what was your relationship with Steven like and how your editing room relationship was like? Well, it was always always very good with Stephen. I used to go, I like to go on the floor a lot. I don't know that Stephen particularly cares about that, but he was happy enough to have me on the floor. But I find that I learned so much about just watching about what directors are doing with a scene, the way that they talk to, although you don't necessarily hear what they're saying to actors, but you can see how their performances are changing after the director's spoken to them. And so I used to go on the floor and watch Stephen quite a lot. And then he loves being in the cutting room, so we work very closely together. Most of the time, we got on really well. I, I, you know, tried to get into his mind, and, uh, you know, and I found that interesting. I think he enjoyed the experience as much as I did. I mean, we, we had a very happy time in the cutting room. And I think we're doing quite creative cutting together. You know, he has great ideas, and I came up with ideas. And uh, an interesting thing is, I think we did too many creative things on Out of Sight at one time. And we'd overloaded it with, you know, these cleverly cut scenes. So we simplified it a bit. We took out a whole flashback when he went to prison another time. And so, you know, I don't remember having any great arguments with him or anything like that. 
in Out of Sight, you've you've got that really well known sort of cross cutting between their dinner and <laughs> the love scene, and yeah. that wasn't if I, if I'm if my research is correct, that wasn't in in the original script. So I was wondering no, how that how did that come about? How did that evolve? Well, it's difficult to remember exactly going back how it evolved, but it the way that it was written was that uh, the scene in the in the bar was written as a, a, a straightforward scene, and then the dialogue was uh, they're going to be overlaid on the bedroom. So when they shot the bedroom stuff, they didn't shoot it with any sound because it was always the idea to overlay it. So I cut the two scenes separately. I cut the bar scene together, taking the best takes as I, you know, and that sort of thing. And then I cut the bedroom together. And so when I run it for film schools and things, I, I luckily kept those two scenes separate, which I don't usually do. And so I was able to show people how it looked when it was not put together. And then I can run it and show them how we overlapped it and everything. And so we just started by cutting it like that. And then I ran the two scenes for Stephen. And then we got the idea of, of intercutting it. I think I think Stephen got it originally, the idea. And then we started doing it together. You know, and we got really excited because it was working really well. So those sorts of scenes, if they don't kind of work well from the beginning, they very often never work well. So, but that, you know, just seemed to go together. And we had the two pieces separately cut, so we could use what most of the scenes, not uh, most of the shots, not all of them, but most of them were the ones in my original cut, which we just started running together and intercutting. And, you know, having the ideas to lay the dialogue ahead. And we tried all sorts of things, but it was... The way that it is was somewhat the way that it was first. I mean, we did some changes, but basically it was using the material that I'd used originally. And then intercut, and, you know, we just got the idea sometimes to put stuff ahead and sometimes to overlay it in different places and things and just sort of came together. And once it had come together, we didn't do a huge amount of work on it afterwards. Just tidied it up here and there, but basically it was, a, you know, quite an early cut, as it were. Because it was such a, it was like an early cut that you did that sort of stayed and got manipulated a bit, but stayed pretty much the way it was? Yeah. Did this change any of the other editing you did to sort of reflect it? Not really, no. Um, as I say, we did do some other scenes which are not in the film now, uh, which I think maybe reflected a little bit. But I don't think that anything that's left in is particularly reflects that. And what were the, the rushes like for this film? Because the George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez have such great chemistry together on set, it seems. Yes, they did. But on screen, I don't think they did that much off screen. But on screen, they did have um, enormous chemistry together. And won some award for the best kiss, I think. But, I mean, they worked really well together. But I don't think they were particularly close friends off the set, as far as I can remember. But uh, I I remember having a a chat with George Clooney, who I've luckily remained friends with. And I was saying how difficult it was, because um, I'd been working on Lightworks, and um, Stephen wanted me to work on Abbott because he had a sound guy that had a link up with Avid. So I had to change, and I'm not really adapted at all that digital stuff. But anyway, so I was having a little problem with it. 
and I was talking to George and I was saying that, you know, really one just had to accept the fact that it really was just editing film. Whatever tool you were using, you were, you know, making it as dramatic as possible and uh, as funny as possible and saving the actor's performance like usual. And he thought that was very funny. And he said to Jennifer then came along and he said to Jennifer... This is this is right on the beginning of the film. He said, "This is the lady that's going to save your performance." <laughs> of course, Jen, Jennifer didn't think that was very funny. <laughs> I always remember that. Wow. George thought it was a really good joke and immediately warmed to me. So, as I say, we've remained friends ever since. So that was my interview with Ann Coates. Now. Again, if you're in the London area, check out edifest.com, check out the supermeet.com, you can go to the supermeet. If you can't afford the edifest, go to the supermeet, a lot of the editors might be there. I'll be there for sure. The other thing is, if you can't afford either, or you just want to hang out, shoot the breeze, talk post, after edifest from 8 to 11 at the John Snow Pub in Soho, we're going to be hosting a pub night. Again, go to edifest.com if you want to check this out, go to supermeet.com, if you're wanting to go to the pub night... Uh, you can either send me an email, info at aotg.com, go to our Twitter, tweet me, at Art Guillotine, or you can simply go to the AOTG website, and in the right-hand side, you'll see sky blue banner that says Pub Night London. Check it out. I'd like to thank Anne for allowing me to interview her. I'd like to thank the American Cinema Editors and, of course, Jenny McCormick for helping set this up so that we can do this preliminary Edifest interview. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.